0: One of the most difficult things I've ever had to do in my life, one of the biggest challenges, was planting a church in Atlanta, Georgia, right after I, Pam and I finished seminary. And we went to Atlanta the plant this church. We are filled with all kinds of, of hope and filled with all kinds of faith of what God was really going to do. But, you know, sometimes when you're out there and you're kind of by yourself, is the time that you are most susceptible sometimes to discouragement. And I didn't wanna become that way. I, I wanted to be uh, up, I wanted to have, be able to have faith that God was gonna really do something there in that area. And I remember going through the library of the Mother Church, I happened to be studying there that day and I'm just going through the different books and I, I caught a book by an author that I wouldn't normally read and I was, uh, I was really intrigued by the title so I took it off the shelf and I began to read the first chapter and it was a story of uh, this pastor who had written the book was uh, recalling his uh, younger days when he was a child and he was raised on a farm. And back in Iowa, they, had, uh, they still have tornadoes, I, I assume, back in the Midwest. They have a lot of tornadoes. And on this particular day, his dad saw a tornado come from a long way away and he was yelling for everybody to get into the truck. And so they got into the truck, they drove to a, a very low place that they knew about on their farm, and they stayed there until the tornado or tornadoes passed over the farming area. And so when it was all over, they drove their truck back to their farm. And he said it was a devastating type of experience. He said it was so devastating that nobody in the car even spoke to one another. They were in awe. They couldn't believe what they were actually seeing. Their eyes, they felt like maybe were, were lying to them. Now, you've been in a situation, I'm sure, like that before. And they looked out on their farm and there was nothing left. There was no, there was no livestock. There, was no, there were no buildings. Their house was just completely collapsed. Their barns were com- completely gone. It was just like a place where a war had just taken place. And they were sitting there for the longest time until their dad said stay in the car, and he got out of the car and began to walk. We'll come back to that story in just a few moments. But you and I have been devastated like that before. In fact, we've said before that Christians go through the same type of problems that everybody else goes through. We just live in a world where we have challenges, where we have problems, but the problem sometimes that we face, the biggest problem is what's going on inside of our our head and our heart. In Western civilization, the United States, We have sort of an outlook on suffering that many people in the world do not have. We think to ourselves, because we have a secular mindset, okay, the now, we live for the now, we think, well, I need to be fulfilled in this life. I need to be happy right now. I've got to have that happiness. Now, any suffering that goes on in my life, therefore, interferes with my happiness. I only go around once in life. I only have this one life to live. I want to be happy. I want to be fulfilled. I want to have success in my life. And so therefore, a virus coming, coming along and really uh, putting me in my home where I cannot exceed in my business world is curtailing my success drive. Getting the virus or getting any other kind of sickness interferes with my quest for happiness. And really, when we think about it, Christians don't feel uh, oftentimes much different than that. And so as we're coming to this book, we understand in the book of 1 Peter as we go through our series Captured by Hope, we said last week in our introduction that Peter was writing this book in order for us and his readers in particular to really understand what they're going through in suffering and how to handle it, to give them the armor, to give them the weapons that they need and you and I need in order to handle uh, that adversity in life and those challenges in life. and. Oftentimes, we're like Haman in Psalm 88. And he said this, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Maybe you feel that way right now. You're going through a situation in life right now, apart from the virus and everything that goes along with that, you're having the other problems in life that's bringing a lack of peace and stress in your life. And you're wondering the question that is most asked of any other question I've ever heard in my entire life, and that is the question, why? Why is this happening to me? Why can't God prevent this from happening? Why is God doing maybe this to me? And so we ask these questions and Peter is trying to give an answer to his readers back in his day as he's writing this little epistle. And as we're writing this, I want to read just a few verses, a couple of verses in our, in our text today. It says in verse six In this we rejoice. In what? We'll come back to that in just a moment. We rejoice through now for a little while, it's necess- if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness, Of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though we have not seen him, you love him. Though we do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's a lot of stuff in just a few verses. So we're going to break this down in these three questions. One, what do we need? What weapons do we need in order to go through the fire? Secondly, why do we need? It says, if necessary, why do we need to go through the fire of trials? And thirdly, what is the desired outcome of this fire in our life? First of all, I want us to see what we need in order to go through the fire. In verse six, it says this. In this, he says, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now we read this and automatically we think what what Peter is saying here is that you and I ought to rejoice in the trials of life. Well, James really does kind of say that. But in this book, in this passage, he's not saying that at all. He's saying in this, Even though you go through trials in this, what is this? What's he talking about here? Well, it's the first five verses that we find that we went over last week. We look at this and he says, Look, uh, in this, your elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God, sanctified in obedience in Christ. He says, Because of who you are in Jesus Christ, because you're putting him first in your life, because your fulfillment, your happiness is wrapped up in him because you identify first and foremost as a believer in Christ. You identify with Jesus. Remember that, what we talked about last week? Well, not only that, but we find here in this passage really the entire plan of salvation. He's saying you're elected according to the foreknowledge of God. You, not only that, but you're sanctified in the Holy Spirit. That is set apart. The Holy Spirit is now in our heart working in our life to work something special in our life to bring us more about looking like Jesus Christ every day and so the sanctifying work of salvation is going on then he talks about he says according to the sprinkling of the blood then in verse down in verse uh, 5 he says you're guarded through faith and that is you're secure so he's saying this look you're saved You're being sanctified, and you're secured forever in Christ. You rejoice in this. What kind of armor do I need to go out into the world, outside these church walls, outside of my house, and really live for Jesus to bring glory and honor to him? What do I need? I need the armor knowing that I am living with Jesus Christ, knowing that I have, it says in in verse uh, 3, a living hope. I've been born again. The Holy Spirit of God lives in my heart. I've been born again, and because of that, I have security in him. I need to bank on that. He says you rejoice in that. Not so much rejoicing in the trials, but you rejoice in the fact of what you have, the armor that you have, the weapons that you have is knowing that you're not trying to identify as the businessman, as the husband, as the father, as the spouse. You're identifying first and foremost with Jesus Christ because he died on the cross for you. He rose again on the third day. You've invited him into your heart. The Holy Spirit of God has come to live inside your heart to begin to sanctify you and to secure you forever for heaven. That is what Peter is saying we ought to rejoice in. He says, in this, you're going to go through fiery trials. He says that in verse 7. In chapter 4, verse 12, he talks about trials being fire again. And so he's saying here, look, we live in a world where there's all kinds of problems. There's all kinds of suffering. And because we're living in a world like that, we're affected by that. And you're saying, well, you know, that's not fair. Well, life's not fair. But it, but it is true that when other people sin, we suffer because of it. The car accident that happens because of maybe the drunk driver. You're not drunk. You're not, dri- dr- driving, uh, uh, you're not drunk in that. But you are affected by the drunk driver as he crashes into you. I don't know how this virus, for example, got started. I have no idea. You know, people say, well, it started in a lab and it was, it was on purpose. Well, that would be barbaric, horrendous. Or it started because of carelessness in wet markets. And we really don't know, but we know we didn't do anything. I I did not invent the virus. I, I didn't, the person who has the virus today didn't invent it. But they are suffering because of what other people have done. That's just, that's life. That's what happens in life. But even in the secular world, even apart from Christ, problems can help you. Now, they're not necessarily designed to help you, but they can help you. Scott Peck, who, as far as I know, uh, Dr. Peck is not a believer, but he says this. It is the whole process of meeting and solving problems that life has its meaning. Problems are the cutting edge that distinguishes between success and failure. Problems call forth our courage and our wisdom. When we desire to encourage the growth of the human spirit, we challenge and encourage the human capacity to solve problems. Just as in school, we deliberately set problems for our children to solve. It is through the pain of confronting and solving and resolving rather problems that we learn. Ben Franklin said this, those things that hurt instruct. Now that is true even if you're not a believer, but the difference is this. God can design things in our life in order to accomplish things in our life, in order to mature us in Christ. And that is the goal of our church. The reason why we're having, at least when uh, before the virus started, Wednesday nights we were having theology classes and evangelism classes and parenting classes is because we wanted you to become more like Jesus Christ. We want you to have the doctrine, as we looked at the first five verses, doctrine, the beliefs, the the armor and the weapons to go out into the world and glorify Christ in your life. It says here that in verse 7, that we may be found to the praise and glory of the Lord. That is the goal. And so if that's the goal, then there's certain things that can happen as we read the word of God to change us. That's kind of interior pressure. You know, that's the kind of pressure that says, wow, I didn't see that in the Bible before. Maybe I read it, but I didn't see it. And so now that I'm, I'm reading it, I'm looking into it, and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, oh, my goodness. I need to get rid of that in my life. That's an attitude I need to change. That's a sin I need to confess. But also there's exterior pressure as well, and that exterior pressure comes from the simple problems of life that cause us to call attention to ourselves and the things that are going on in our life. Well, we look at this, and we understand that that's what we're trying to develop here as a church. And that's what God's trying to do in your life as well. And so we look secondly this morning at why, why do we need to go through the fire? Why do we need it? Well, in verse 6, once again, it begins to give us... In fact, I want to look at two things real quickly here. One is the presence, the presence of trials again. And then, and then the reason for it. And look at the presence. He says, look... In verse 6, we rejoice that now for a little while. So, first of all, we understand that these trials that we're going through are temporary. Now, what does it mean to be temporary? Well, uh, you know, it just depends, right? I mean, after all, you say, well, that's a long uh, prayer. How long is that prayer? Well, it may be five minutes. You know, the great evangelist of the 19th century <clears throat> um, Dwight L. Moody said, he said that uh, if you pray for three minutes, I'll pray with you. You pray for four minutes, and uh, I'll pray for you. But if you pray for as long as five minutes, I'm gonna pray against you. And you think about one person taking up a prayer meeting with a five minute long prayer, it it just seems for eternity, that's a long prayer. But if you say, well, wow, man, that was a long sermon. Well, how long was it? Oh, it's five minutes. No, you wouldn't say that. You might, I don't know, maybe an hour. And so now you're looking at something different. Well, you're looking at a sermon. That was a long sermon. It went for a whole hour. But then again, it changes a little bit when you say, man, he was in a long pastorate. Long pastorate. How long? What, well, he was He was our pastor for an hour. Man, what a what a long hour uh, that was. No, you wouldn't say that. It'd be 15 or 20 years. And so the different things that we go, go through in life are, are different compared to what it could be. We, we just don't know. You know, sometimes when we have the flu, it, that's a, like, a, like a viral or a stomach flu, a stomach virus. We have a stomach virus that lasts for 24 hours. maybe intense, but it lasts for 24 hours. While the coronavirus could last for weeks and even months. And so there's a different perspective of problems in life. Well, we see that they're temporary. Um... Sooner or later, they're going to pass, and we're going to look, look at something probably else, another trial in our life. Then we find they're necessary. He says, for a little while, if necessary. Now, they're not always necessary. We go through trials in life sometimes because uh, we're not in the right place at the right time. We're, we're where God doesn't want us to be. Maybe there's sin in our life, and we suffer because of that. But he also says they are necessary because the only way that we're going to come to ourselves and know ourselves is because of what we go through in the trials of life. It's like we're coming to ourselves, like the prodigal son. He goes off into a far country. He begins to feed the swine, the Bible says, and he comes to himself. Well, we're coming to ourselves. You know, when you grow up, and say maybe you grew up in a large family and you had a brother and a sister, or maybe two or three brothers and sisters, you hung around with one another and, and, and they rubbed against you a little bit and they changed you. In fact, you were able to come to yourself and you think to yourself, wow, you know, I didn't know I had that problem, but my brother and sister told me I did. And they're picking on me and laughing about, uh, about it. Or then you, you move maybe to college and you have a roommate. Maybe you have a roommate or two and they don't care about you. As much as your parents do and they can bring out so many other things in your life that nobody else could see. And because of that roommate situation and that trial that you're going through, suddenly you begin to understand that you have weaknesses in your life that you need to change. Woe be it to the one who marries someone who maybe didn't have that brother and sister relationship and no roommates and no one to change you at all. And I know that it, ladies, if you married a man like that, you're thinking, wow, me and the Holy Spirit and I had a lot of work to do and still have maybe some work to do as well. It's like the lady that had a husband like that. And a funny story was told. And uh, I don't know how funny it is, but we'll see. Um, A funny story was told about how this couple goes into the doctor and um, kind of an older couple, and, and the doctor t- tells the man, he says, well, you've got this disease, and it is curable, but it can be fatal. And he says, what should I do? And he says, well, would you leave the room and allow your wife and I to talk about this for just a moment? And so he leaves the room, and he says, look, he says, the only way this man's going to be, your husband's going to be cured, if he just sits back and does nothing, and what you need to do is wait on him hand and foot, he needs to just sit back in his lazy boy, watch TV all day. He can't do any yard You're going to have to do the yard work for him now. You're going to have to do some of these things that he was doing around the house. You're going to have to be in charge of those. You've got to feed him right there in his chair. He can't, he can't move around a lot. And if you do this, I think there's some real hope for him. Otherwise, I'm not sure, it, it, you know, what kind of hopeful um, prognosis I could give you. And so she leaves the room kind of in a daze. Walks into the waiting room where her husband is waiting. Doesn't say anything at all. They get to their car, and he's just dying of curiosity. And she, he just finally asks his wife. He said, "What did the doctor say?" And she said, "She." He said, "You're going to die." Well, I need a laugh track here. There's nobody here to laugh. That's the problem of telling them a joke, uh, I guess. But anyway, moving right along. They are not only necessary, but they're varied as well. Notice it says, it says, in, if necessary, you've been grieved for various in various trials. They could be anything. Anything. In fact, he doesn't really spe- specify in this passage what it is. He says it could be anything. And not only that, but you're going to be grieved by it. And there's nothing wrong with it. He says you're going to be grieved, just like Haman was crying out to God and that was a good thing. Here he says you're going to be grieved and that's why you need to rely on your doctrine. You need to rely on your beliefs of the first five verses and what God is doing in your life right now and the Holy Spirit and his work in your life. You need to concentrate on that because if you're not careful, you can drown in self-pity, and you don't want to do that. You really don't want to suffer in self-pity. You know, when we suffer in self-pity, we give our, ourselves all kinds of excuses to do all kinds of things we shouldn't be doing and making bad decisions with our life. And it could be something simple, where you say you've had a bad day, it's been an awful day, and maybe you've been on a diet, but you were justified in eating that entire pepperoni pizza all by yourself. And you deserved it, you, you deserved that. Or you deserved the, maybe to go out and buy something that you really didn't have the money to buy. You needed to do that for yourself because you've had such a bad week. Or like the person, the businessman, I heard the story, a businessman, and lo- losing his business, feeling sorry for himself, so he goes out and has an affair. Why? Well, he deserved a little happiness in life. You don't want to be in self-pity, but the Bible teaches us to cry out to God, and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, there's a special blessing in prayer, the Bible says, for those who really cry out to God, as Haman was in Psalm 88. Well, we look at this, and we see the presence of trial certainly in our life. And we can handle that grief because of what God has done for us. But what is the purpose? Well, first of all, to prove our faith and to purify our faith. In fact, in fact this word, tested genuineness, really has a double meaning. We said that in this rejoice, that for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness now, genuineness, first of all, means that it's the real thing. Are you really a believer? Can you look back at the first five verses of this and say, wow, that's me. I can identify with Jesus Christ. That's who I am. I know I've been saved. I know that Jesus Christ lives in my heart. You see, the only way you can know when you build a building and you're saying, oh, it's, it's, tested, it's hurricane tested. I mean, we know that this building's going to hur- hold up during a hurricane. You don't know that until what the hurricane comes. And you can see whether it's genuine or not. We've said in last week's message, if Christ has gone through the fire for you at the cross, then you can know he will be in the fire of testing with you as you journey through life together. But not everybody's a believer. It, it, they're just not. I was reading a, an article this past week Uh, from George Barna, the man who likes to really survey the church and survey America about religious feelings. And he said this. He said, more people now are believing and are convinced, at least convinced, that there is a Satan than they're they're convinced there's a God. Only 51% of the people in America say they are positive there's a God. 56% believe that they believe positively there's Satan. Less than 50% of the people believe in the word of God. And so what we have in the church oftentimes are people that are not the genuine article. They're not the genuine faith. I know that there's been a lot of articles written in the past about Duns. They're just done with church. And they say, oh, we love Jesus. I'm not sure what that means. You know, I love Jesus. I don't love the church. I don't love people to be with me in the church. But nevertheless, I, I kind of love Jesus. But but I don't want to go to church anymore. What's going on? Well, oftentimes they got into church because they had babies and they wanted their babies to come to a church like ours where they're going to be cared for. Children, when they grow up, a little bit they'll be in going to camp or going on a mission trip as a child in a WANA program. They wanted these things for their kids. Our youth program, we have a great youth program here as well as a children's program. And, you know, they wanted to be part of those mission trips and part of that discipleship. But now their children are grown and they're off at college. They're just done because it never registered with them. 1 John 2.19 says this, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they've been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. And so you're going through testing. How do you respond? You turn away from God? I'm done with God. I mean, if if God really loved me, he would have done this for me in the way that I wanted it done. He would have answered that prayer. He would have rescued me from that suffering. In fact, because he didn't rescue me from that suffering, my life is not what it should have been because it's not happy enough. And I'm, I'm not getting what I need to get out of this life because he didn't intervene in my life. And so I'm just done. Or are you going to turn to God because of the work that he's doing in your life. Are you going to trust him? Well, it's to prove our faith, but this word tested genuine means in the original Greek language as well as genuineness for the quality of it. In other words, is it not only real, but once it's real, is it purified? And so we're looking at the purity of our faith. Now, God has told us here in verse 7, tested your faith and begins to explain it. More precious than gold that perishes through, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the result in praise and glory and honor and the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's a goal in mind, but he says, What is the process here? What is the purification process? Well, I'm not a goldsmith, silversmith, but I've read on, on these subjects. and. Gold, when it comes out of the ground, it makes sense. When gold comes out of the ground, it's not purified. There's things in the gold that are not gold. And so in order to purify the gold, it has to be heated. Now, many things, when you put them in the fire, they burn up. They, They just burn up. And certainly trials in your life can burn you. And they can burn you up and burn you out and put you on the shelf. And usually that's when the faith usually was not genuine. But what about the purity of it? Well, you heat the gold because of what that, what that gold represents. Our faith is real. It's real gold. It's real faith. It's not going to be burned up, but rather the impurities rise to the top. They're scraped off, and then the gold, whatever's there, is real gold. And so our faith, when you and I are saved, is, is not pure. And so through the trials of life, though that is made more and more pure. It's refined. We go through these trials in life, even in the secular world. There was a survey done a few years ago of the 413 most successful people in America. And it was discovered 392 out of the 413 went through somewhere in their life, a deep, deep suffering type of trial to make them what they were. What they were made into. So God wants to mature us. God wants us to help us. Our mission statement is that we would, we would teach you to love, know, trust, and follow Jesus. That's what we want to do in order to arm you to go out into the world and become someone that would glorify God. In other words, someone that will make Christ seem bigger, seem more magnificent to the rest of the world. You know, one of the things that is often objected to in the Christian life is that people say, well I can't see God, I can't see him and you can't. It says even here in verse eight, we'll just read ahead, though you have not seen him, you love him it's, well you know I, I haven't seen him and, and I don't love him. Last week we said in you know, a couple of weeks ago in Thomas's life how he said, I, I'm, not going to, I'm not going to believe in your Christ until I see the nail prints in your hand. And Jesus later said, blessed are you, Thomas, but blessed is more for those who have not seen the nail prints of my hand and not seen me alive and yet believe anyway. You say, well, I can't see God, but you can see the effects of God. You can't see, for example, uh, the coronavirus either. You know, they say it's in the air, six feet, you got to stay six feet away in order not to to, uh, spray on someone else or sneeze on someone else, cough on someone else, six feet away because it can get in the air, it's airborne but you can't see it. I've never seen the virus, uh, and so you haven't either, but you've seen the effects of that virus. Well, that same truth is with God. You can't see God, but you can see the effects of God. You can see the effects. He says, first five verses, in your own life then you can see the effects in the lives of the people. And one of the reasons, dear friend, why the rest of the world is not looking at us and begging to know about the hope that is within us is they don't see the effects. They don't see. We're not, we're not armed to win the world because they're not seeing the big differences in our life. They're not seeing the hope. They're not seeing the peace. They're not seeing maybe the love of Christ come out in our heart Uh, more than anyone else. In fact, sometimes even less as we can become so judgmental of other people. And so they're not seeing the effects of God. And so for us just to say, well, the Bible's true, for us to say, well, Jesus rose from the dead and here's the difference that it makes doesn't ring with them because they have not witnessed it. They have not seen the changes. One of the problems I said a few weeks ago to our youth groups growing now and, and once they get to college and they're thinking to themselves, well, I'm just gonna live my own life, do my own thing. One of the problems that we've seen is that one of the reasons they become so committed to the church is because of the surrounding people around them, the support group around them. But doctrinally, and their belief system is not really their own. And one of the reasons for that, they haven't seen the difference. You know, where are the people that were saved maybe in high school? that would give a, stand up and give a testimony how Jesus has changed their life and they think to themselves, wow, man, look at that person in the 11th grade and now look at them as a senior in high school. What a, this is not the same person. We're not seeing that. It's great to go on the mission trips. It's great to have the discipleship, but we've got a witness of what's going on in the life of the people and that's one reason why in our church our mission trips for our young people have made such a big difference. They've gotten out on the mission field and they've seen the difference that Jesus Christ can make in our life. He says, look, I want to bring you to the praise and glory of God. In verse, uh, in verse 7, it says the praise and glory. That is the magnified Christ. The honor. That's the things we're going to get at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The rewards that we're going to get when Jesus Christ comes back again. Well, we've looked at this and I want to close. And we look at what the desired outcome of the fire Hope we hope to be. He says, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The soul is the whole life. That's what it's speaking of here. So it's not just talking about salvation as it happened back then when Jesus Christ came into my life. It's talking about salvation right now as the Holy Spirit is sanctifying me, verse 2, and making me more like Jesus every day and growing me up in Christ. And then it's talking about the revelation of Jesus Christ. When he comes back again, we're going to be with him. We're going to be totally saved at that point. Now, the Bible talks about salvation really in three stages and talks about it in the past tense, really, in all three stages, many cases. I have been saved, born again, and I've been saved from the penalty of sin in my life. Then, sanctification, I am being saved from the power of sin in my life just to, or rather the end of it is glorification. When I get to heaven, you get to heaven and you're saved from the very presence of sin. He says, the outcome of this is going to be the salvation of our souls. Then in verse 10, he says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of of Christ in them Uh, was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that now have been announced to you through those who preach the good news, the gospel, the good news of Christ being buried and raising again, things in which the angels long to look. What's he saying here? Look, the whole Bible's about this thing. One thing. About the salvation, the saved from the penalty, the presence, and the power of sin, or the power of sin and the presence of sin. That's what the whole Bible is about. The Old Testament prophets, they preached to their people, but they predicted a lot of stuff. And that prediction centered around Jesus Christ coming to this earth and dying on the cross for our sins. The whole Bible, it says, the Old Testament prophets, We're preaching this over and over and over again. And one of the things we get also from this is that why was it so permeating everything? Because the gospel was so important. In fact, you can't replicate it. Think about that for just a moment. The The only religion in the world that you really can't replicate is Christianity. In other words, if you were to take most religions, in fact, maybe all of them pretty much, And said, we're not going to have this religion anymore. And 100 years from now, they decided, we want to start that religion up again. How would they do it? Well, they would pull off from the same principles and precepts that that religion was based on. Because they're based on, uh, all religions are based on precepts, they're based on principles, they're based on laws. The things that you do and the things that you don't do. Christianity is based upon a person. And it's based upon a person dying on a cross being resurrected on the third day, you can't just say, okay, we're going to take the Bible, even the word of God, the perfect word of God, we can't even take that and replicate Christianity without the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He said it's so vital, it's so important, it's so living to us. And he says the secret is, is look, you you need to concentrate all the way back to verse one, identify with Jesus. Keep your eyes on him like Peter walking on the water. Keeping your eyes on Jesus and not the circumstances of life. Identifying with him, Him, not the things of the world. Years ago, I had an opportunity to serve an internship at uh, First Baptist Church of Atlanta for a short time uh, during my coursework. And um, got a chance to meet Charles Stanley and some others. And Charles Stanley tells a story about how he went through such a rough time at First Baptist Church of Atlanta back in the early 70s when he first uh, moved there. And uh, one of the ladies in the church, elderly lady that I, I happened to meet um, while I was there, uh, invited her, him to uh, her home for lunch or for coffee. So he went over to the, the house, and uh, they had their coffee, and they, then they go into the den, and there was this big picture of Daniel. And you've seen the picture before, but this is a big rendition of it, where he was in the pit. The lions were salivating around him, and he was on his knees looking up. And he, she asked him, he says, Dr. Stanley, what do you notice about this picture? And he says, well, I see the lions. And he was, uh, uh, lions were all, figuratively, all around him during that time. And she says, no, I want you to look again. And then he noticed, he said, Daniel has his eyes looking up and not on the lions. He has his eyes on Jesus and not on the lions. You're going to have trials. So who are you looking to? To finish my story, the first of the message, as they were sitting in that truck after that tornado and everything on the farm was flattened, the dad gets out of the car or the truck. He begins to go and mingled during the debris and moving things around for the longest time. Finally, he picks up a piece of wood and he comes back to the truck. Above their kitchen, in their kitchen on the wall, they had had a little wooden plaque that said, keep looking to Jesus. And the only thing he could find in one piece in that whole thing was just simply half of that sign. Keep looking, keep looking. Looking, and he knew what that meant. He got back in the truck and he told his family, It's going to be okay. Many of the farmers and ranchers around that area went out of business. They abandoned their, their farms. They moved off to another place. But he said his dad not only went among his debris, but the debris among many all across the way and got boards that were still intact. And he took those old boards and rebuilt their house. Then he built the barns out of that same kind of wood, scouring around, finding what he could find. He planted, he found some money, borrowed some money to plant the seeds in the ground. And right after that, a boom came in the farming industry. And their farm was not only saved, but it multiplied while many of the people were out of business. Why? Because he kept looking, he kept looking to Jesus. As I read that story, and I was planting that church, I said to myself, or I said to God, God, I don't want to be discouraged. I don't want to look at the circumstances of life. And I see so many church planters just just quit. I don't want to be one of those guys. I want to keep looking to Jesus. And God multiplied that church. And it became a very strong church in that area with many great people. And through that, through that experience, God moved me here almost 27 years ago. But it all kind of began a little bit with that encouraging word, keep looking to Jesus. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at